0: hello everyone and welcome back to the british royal fanatic podcast i'm hayden your american friend with a passion for british royal history we are now into week two of delving into scary stories from royal history past creepy stories and exploring some of the ghosts of royal history's past I don't know about you, I'm excited that now finally here in the United States, especially in the Midwest, it's beginning to feel like fall, it's beginning to feel actually like it's getting cooler out, and I don't know about you, but that makes me very excited. Last week, we spent some time back at Hampton Court Palace, and we talked about some of the more famous ghosts held therein. We talked about the ghosts of screaming queens begging for their life for one last chance to plead their case for forgiveness. We talked about hidden skeletons, hidden in courtyards, and even a possible ghost caught on camera that is still relatively unexplained to this day. To continue our foray into royal residences and some of the ghost stories held therein, we are now delving into what is, in my opinion, the most scary royal residence of them all. This is a place known for, at its time, being a royal residence, a multifunction building for the crown, and a prison. And a lot of people were executed there. You guessed right, you've seen the title of this episode. Today we are delving into the Tower of London. The Tower of London is one of England's Oldest and most historic royal residences. Today it functions more as a museum where offers historic tours, reenactments, but there are still offices there for work for the crown. Uh, the official crown jewels are held there. There's other historic conservation that happens there. A lot of documentaries are shot there. But at one time, the tower of london had sort of a split personality where it was both this royal residence that was used to entertain and protect but also used in times of war for prisoners for executions so it's it's seen a lot of history and it's well over a thousand years of life within the royal family Now, today we're going to explore three main areas of interest, and this is sort of a general trigger warning, but we're going to cover sort of three main things outside of general background. So we have our general background, but then our three points we're going to discuss. It's time as a prison and some of the more famous prisoners held therein. We are going to talk about some torture methods And we are going to be talking about some of the more famous ghosts. So just a general trigger warning, we are going to be talking about torture and death. But before we get into it, let's establish some background information about the tower. Let's paint, let's set the scene. The formal name of the tower is Her Majesty's Royal Palace and Fortress of the Tower of London. And it's located in central London on the north bank of the River Thames. In... About the 1070s, William the Conqueror, who was very fresh off of a victory, but he was very nervous of rebellion and sort of wanted to have his presence be known, he set out to build a massive stone fortress in London. Its goal was to defend the city, but also to proclaim his new power as sovereign. Now, at this time, you got to put your history hats on. You got to keep in context here that a building such as this in the 1070s really didn't exists a big stone multi-story building we're in the middle ages here and he really wanted to set himself up in a very good way and so he set out to build this and nothing like this really had ever been built before so he intended on it to, uh, to quote be a mighty castle that would not only dominate the skyline but also the hearts and minds of the defeated londoners so he conquered London, he wanted to build a fortress there to assert his dominance, to show the Londoners, I am king, I am who's, who, who's boss. So the first part of the tower took about 20 years to build, and the masonries and a lot of the workers in stone arrived from Normandy, from France, but what's kind of ironic is a lot of Englishmen and Londoners built and actually provided the labor for the tower, so it's kind of ironic in that in that sense. But of course, as we've seen in trends with royal residences, the moment a new sovereign comes in, they have to make an imprint, they try to improve everything. So as the crown passed from different hands, a lot of different sovereigns put their own take and improve the tower as best they could. Uh, The kings Henry III and Edward I really expanded upon what William's original fortress was, and they added the huge curtain defense walls and also a series of smaller towers, and they enlarged the moat at uh, the Tower of London. They also transformed the tower into England's largest and strongest, quote, concentric castle, meaning that there's one line, there's one wall on the outside defending, and then there's another inner wall that acts as another defense. So there's Some ways, two walls around the tower protecting it. In its time, even still to this day, kings and queens used the tower in times of trouble to protect possessions and themselves. A lot of very valuable things to the crown are still held there to this day. Also, fun fact the armor and uh, weapons and other arms were built at the tower well into the 1800s. So it was still used as an armory well into the 19th century. In its lifetime, the Tower of London has served as an armory, the official treasury to England and to the United Kingdom. It was a menagerie to hold exotic animals, which there are tributes to those still to this day. It was the home of the official royal mint. It was an office of public record, and it is now known, as I've said multiple times, the home of the crown jewels of England. The royal mint was held in the Tower from the reign of Edward I, All the way until 1810, so in the time of George III... So that's, if you think history-wise, that's not too far away from present time, granted it's over 200 years ago, but when you think of history objectively, that's not too long ago. From the early 14th century until the reign of Charles II in the 17th century, a procession would be led from the Tower to Westminster Abbey on the day of a coronation of, the, of a new monarch. And when the monarch was not present at the tower in this time frame, the constable of the tower was in charge of everything. The castle, all of it, and... In the medieval times, this was a very trusted and very high, powerful position because you have to think this was a place where the sovereign lived. It was in London. It was in a big town. You know, the monarch was there very frequently. It had a lot of very important offices there. This is sort of the, you know, before St. Now St. James's palace is this sort of heart of the monarchy. But for the longest time, the Tower of London was sort of this multifaceted center of it all. Of course, we've seen it's seen a lot of tragedy most notably which we'll get into some of these during the War of the Roses, King Henry VI was murdered there in 1471 and later the children of the, uh the children of the rival of Edward IV which known as the Princes of the Tower, mysteriously vanished in 1483. Put a pin in that. That's a story we're going to revisit maybe next week. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We might be talking about that next week. You never know. The famous yeoman warders recognized as the symbol of the tower all across the world have been at the tower for centuries. They were originally a part of the Yeoman of the Guard, the monarch's personal bodyguards, who traveled with them uh henry the decreed that some of them would stay and guard the tower permanently now i've seen the royal collection sort of touch base on this a few times and apparently why there's always yeomen of the guard and there's always still to this day they're present there to this day this is a proclamation that's been followed since the the reign of king henry the was that apparently one night he wanted to test the waters to see if how easily someone could break into the tower. And he broke into the tower, didn't tell anybody he was coming, but it was so easy for him that he got angry and looked at everybody and said, okay, this needs to change. I was able to break in here without even trying, you know, what, what the hell's going on? So that's the rumor that I know they've shared a few times about why the guard are still there and certain ceremonies still happen to this day. And it's because of that. And they're sort of still in this older traditional uh, garb and regalia. It's because of that, that Henry VIII made this decree because apparently he tried to break in, was successful, and now they have to constantly stand guard there until this day. No other sovereign has touched base on trying to change that. Today, the yeoman warders, or the bee feeders, as they're known colloquially, guard the visitors, but they also still carry out ceremonial duties, such as unlocking and locking the tower every day in the ceremony of the keys. I know it was a really big deal a few days ago, I think a few days ago, or maybe a week ago, when they finally announced that this ceremony re- has restarted again. They're trying to bring back some of the ceremonies to the, to, to the tower. They wear their traditional red state dress uniforms for important occasions at the tower and also for special events such as the firing of the huge cannon on the wharf, which is known as the gun salutes. Today, the Tower of London, as I said, is more of a museum and doesn't really function as a royal residence anymore. It hasn't functioned as a royal residence for decades, upwards of a few centuries, actually. It was opened up, if my memory's correct, the Tower of London was opened up as a museum during the reign of... Uh, Queen Victoria, or maybe uh, William, right before William the Fourth, right before her. Um, I do know that. You know, yes, the Sovereign Assembly doesn't live there anymore, but there are grace and favor apartments that are there. In fact, I believe some people still live at the Tower of London still to this day. If you work there or your family works there, or if your family has some sort of military significance and they've been granted a grace and favor apartment, there are still people who live at Hampton, at Hampton Court Palace, at, at the Tower of London. In fact, I don't know her TikTok account, but there's a girl who lives there who sort of documents and has permission to take videos and post there of her. She actually lives there. So people still live there, but it's now a museum, they have multiple tours, and really lean into more of the history, but that's sort of a, a incredibly brief overview, I, I stress very brief, because the main story today is we're talking about its scary past, it's you know, very, in some ways, traumatic. So for most of its history, the Tower of London functioned as a prison. When it wasn't being used to house the monarch, it was being used as a prison. For over 800 years, men and women have arrived at the Tower very uncertain of their fate. They knew they were being sent there, but in some cases they didn't know how long, and in some cases it was incredibly brief because they would go off to be executed. Uh, During the Tudor age, the Tower became the most important state prison in the country, Anyone who was thought to be a threat to national security would be sent there, and it would be and it, they would be sent to prison. Now, depending on your importance would determine your type of accommodation. We think of prison now, especially in the medieval times, as being miserable. But depending on who you were, if, especially if you were um, someone who was, yes, you were a threat to the state, but you had a title, you were a prince or princess or lord or some, some other title, you would actually have pretty good accommodation. In fact, uh, you'd have multiple rooms. It sort of be like a, it would sort of be like an official state apartment in some ways. But there, then there'd be accommodations that we'll also see that were very barren and very traumatic and very, very, very awful. So your accommodation at the Tower really depended on your social status. But here are some of the more famous uh, prisoners held therein at the Tower of London. The first one that I always forget about is Queen Elizabeth I. She was held there very briefly at the Tower when she was a kid. And you have to think her mother was Anne Boleyn. Her And there was the uh, all the trauma therein in the drama of Mary, Queen of Scots. And Elizabeth I and who had reign and who had control. And during all that back and forth, there was a brief period where Elizabeth I was held prisoner at the tower for a very brief period. But she was held there very shortly. She, of course, would have some of the more nicer apartments and didn't necessarily get too uh poor of treatment. The next very famous Uh, prisoner was, of course, Anne Boleyn herself. She stayed at the tower briefly on the eve of her coronation, and she went out one entrance, and it was wonderful and great. And then not a thousand days later, she circled back around and came back through Prisoner's Gate and was held there, of course, because adultery. There was also other drama, possible talks of treason as well. But the big thing here was adultery against Henry VIII. And as we know, she got beheaded, and it's said that her ghost still haunts the execution yard, either searching for her head, headless, but Anne Boleyn is most notably known to be seen at the Tower of London. The next is Sir Walter Raleigh. So he was uh, the explorer who went on the ill-fated Roanoke, uh, expedition to the American colonies. He came back and was knighted by the queen, Queen Elizabeth I. Everything was great and wonderful. He was having a lot of success, but then he got in trouble twice. He was sent to the tower twice. Once was for a secret marriage to one of the Queen's courtiers, because at this time, if you were in the court, you had to get the Queen's permission. He didn't do that. He just married someone. So he was sent to the tower to be punished. And then the other time there was a treason plot and he got caught. And I believe at that point he was sent to the tower and he was subsequently executed. There's, of course, the very famous the Princes of the Tower, which we're going to touch base on. It's a very long story that I want to really delve into uh, next week. Now, this one is very famous, especially if you've seen the film V for Vendetta, Guy Fox. So we all know the rhyme of remember, remember the 5th of November, if you've, if you've seen the film. Uh, but Guy Fox with his, he had a plot to blow up Parliament. He wanted to blow up Parliament. And at the time, he wanted to time it right to when the king was there, uh, King James II. And he he uh, got caught. And again, I'm gl- glancing over history here, but Guy Fawkes got caught trying to blow up Parliament and trying to kill not only everybody they're in, but also kill the kill the king. He was sent to the Tower and he was brutally tortured. He was tortured uh, quite aggressively, so much that if you there's facsimiles of this where it's his signature before he went to to, to the Tower and then his signature after the the confession. And they're so drastically different that it really shows how how aggressive the torture was. So physical torture at this point with Guy Fox was used to try to get information out to try to get anybody else to just get more information about what this plot was. And on January 3rd, 31st, 1606, Guy Fawkes and uh, his fellow plotters were dragged behind a horse through London to Westminster Yard, where they were eventually hanged, drawn, and quartered. But before then, when he was captured, he was tortured for a long period of time to try to get information out of of him and sort of uh, get a confession. But then he was hanged, drawn, and quartered. Uh, Lady Jane Grey. So Lady Jane Grey, it's kind of sad how this kind of happened. She was Queen for about nine days. <laughs> and this was around, again, the time you have to think in the Tudor period when the crown sort of passed between a lot of hands really quickly. Uh, As the royal family tree, you know, certain people didn't have heirs, and so it moved very quickly. And so Lady Jane Grey, she got the crown. She was queen for about nine days. And then, nope, it's not supposed to be yours. It got passed to someone else. And to make sure that Lady Jane Grey didn't have a plot to try to get the crown back, she was sent to the tower. I can't remember who was sovereign at the time. It's been a long day, guys. (laughs) And subsequently, she was sent there and actually... um, executed. It was thought that she was uh, supposed to, uh, there was a treason plot where she was going to try to get the crown back. There was that fear. And so they, um, sent her there and she was eventually executed. Now we're going to fast forward a little bit. So we've talked a lot about, we're going to sort of now jump around history a little bit. A lot of what we've talked about is in the Tudor period with Guy Fox, Elizabeth I, Anne Boleyn, and, Uh, Lady Jane Grey, Tudor prisoners, but we actually prisoners were held there very briefly during the 1940s, during World War II. So this is talk about Rudolf Hess and uh, Joseph Jacobs and the fellow German spies. So in sort of very brief post-World War II period in England, there were German spies. There were Englishmen that were German spies that were found, and they were actually sent to the tower very briefly to be held as prisoner before they were then sent to other facilities. But the tower was where they were first sent. Rudolf Hess was sent there and Jacob uh, Joseph Jacobs, who was a German spy apprehended, in rural england not only was he a prisoner there but he was actually the last man to be put to death at the tower he was held prisoner there and he was the last person to be executed there by firing squad in august of 1941. so now again we're now in the 20th century and we have the notorious cray twins they were a prisoner there in the 50s and 60s again while joseph jacobs was the last person to be put to death he wasn't the last person to be a prisoner there the last people, or also, quote, among the last people to be held prisoner at the Tower were the were known as the Cray Twins. They were infamous London gangsters who roamed the streets of the capital's east end in the 50s and 60s, and they were held there very briefly, but not for any acts of murder or arson or armed robbery or any other assaults. The Cray Twins had been called up to serve with the Royal Fusiliers, but they attempted to leave after only a few minutes of actually being there, and they punched a corporal in the chin and they just walked back to the east end they were then arrested and held at the, at the tower for a few days before they were then transferred to shepton marlett military prison to await official court martial so they got called to do military work and they went no punched their corporal went back home and then they got caught and were held at the tower briefly before going to be official court uh, to be court-martialed now we are going to we went to the very end of time. We talked about the Tudors. Now we're going to go back to the very beginning. The very first prisoner held at the tower is Renolf Flumbard. And he was the very first prisoner to be held at the tower. And this is back in 1100. Um, it's believed that uh, Renolf Flumbard, the Bishop of Durham, was the very first prisoner to to not only be there, but also to escape. He escaped the tower. So Flumbard was the official financial advisor to King William II, which meant he was incredibly powerful and influential. William imposed a lot of high taxes, and he and Flumbard were generally not very popular. When William was killed in battle by his younger brother Henry, and then Henry became king, uh, the new king had Flumbard banished to the tower. But in 1101, just after six months of being there, uh, Flimbard, he hatched a plan to escape. He threw an elaborate banquet for the guards with several uh, barrels of wine, because you got to think of the accommodation that he would have had, being a bishop and a financial advisor. And in one of the barrels, he hit some rope. And as everybody was getting drunk and partying and having the best time, the guards were a little too drunk to notice. And Flimbard climbed out of a window, and <laughs> there awaiting him, was a little sailboat, and he went to Normandy and was never to be seen again. And those are some of the more famous uh, prisoners to be held at the tower. Of course, there's around, there's countless men and women that were held there, but those are the more famous. But a point to make out is a lot of it happened in the Tudor period when it was used mainly as a prison. This is where we're going to get into torture. So it's very surprising to learn that torture, we hear in the you know medieval and somewhat in the Renaissance, but of torture techniques. And at the tower, they were very much employed. While it was a prison, it only a small fraction of the prison Prisoners were actually tortured, and it was sort of, they needed to have a reason to do so. Torture has never been permitted under English law. And those that carried out torture at the tower had to act under direct orders from either the Privy Council or the monarch themselves. So they couldn't just do it willy-nilly. They had to have permission. They had to have from the higher ups to go do this. You have permission to do so. They were three main instruments of torture that were employed at the tower, and they were the rack, the scavenger's daughter, and the manacles. So the rack is the most widely associated instrument and most known used in torture and it was designed to stretch the body the, the victim's body so there'd be clamps on the wrists and clamps on the ankles and they would be stretched and the goal would be to dislocate limbs and eventually ripping them out from their sockets At the tower, it was also known as the Duke of Exeter's daughter because it was claimed that to be the invention of the dukes, who was a constable at the tower in the 15th century. More often than not, the prisoners actually never got put on the rack. They were shown it, and that was enough to scare them, so if they were getting questioned And they weren't giving answers, they were being sort of difficult, they would then take them down to the rack and go, if you don't give us answers, we're going to put you on there and you're going to, you know, we're going to torture you. And that was enough to scare them to actually give answers. But of course, people did get put on the rack, but it was known that the sheer sight of it was known to actually get them to rethink and actually surrender and give to give answers. So, during the very tumultuous 16th century, the rack was freely employed by the Catholic Queen Mary, and of course the Protestant monarchs Henry VIII, Edward VI, and Elizabeth this, Elizabeth I. The second mode of known torture was called the Scavenger's Daughter, which is also known as Skeffington's Irons, and it was designed by Sir Leonard Skeffington, who was Lieutenant of the Tower during the reign of Henry VIII. It was conceived as the perfect complement to the rack, and it worked in opposite principles. So the rack stretched people out, In the scavenger's daughter, the body was then compressed, and it was sort of pushed and uh, compressed together. And the scavenger's daughter is only mentioned briefly in documents. There's not a lot of documents showing that it was used quite frequently. So it's based off that, we can surmise that it wasn't used a lot. And the last method of torture was known as the manacles, which manacles were iron cuffs that were worn around the wrists. The prisoner would then be suspended with the feet just off the floor for often long periods. And this would, of course, you're being hung up by your wrists and you're just enough off the floor So it would cause a lot of physical pain. It would be incredibly discomfort. And afterwards, the victim would actually find it. You know, your muscles are being stretched. Tendons are being stretched. Joints are being stretched in the shoulders and the arms. And in fact, after being put on the manacles, those that were taken off of them found it incredibly difficult to use their hands afterwards. The warders of the tower, also known as the Beefeaters, under the command of the lieutenant of the tower, were responsible for carrying out the acts of torture. The questioning was carried out by commissioners, among whom there was usually at least one law officer, such as a royal attorney. So again, the higher ups, people in charge would do the questioning there'd be some former commissioner, royal attorney, but then they would then get handed off to the Beefeaters if they if they weren't doing it. And then at that point, they'd have to do whatever torture method that they would see fit. Now, the very famous guy Fox, we'd already talked about him as a very famous uh prisoner. He is the most also the most famous prisoner to be tortured at the Tower of London. It's not known whether he was subjected to the rack, but it's thought by many that he was tortured by the manacles, so hung up and the use of the rack or the manacles or a combination thereof we're not necessarily know but being up there and his you know wrists and his hands being you know that part of his body being uh, tortured is said to why his signature was so different from uh before and after his confession you know he was apparently very very brutally tortured at the tower of london so now We've talked about torture methods. We've talked about famous prisoners. Now let's delve into some of the more notorious ghost stories. So a very famous ghost that haunts the Tower of London is Arabella Stewart, who was the cousin of Elizabeth I, who was under arrest and was sent to the Tower, and she was sent to the Tower for not getting royal permission to marry And it is said that she starved herself to death while she was their prisoner at the tower. And she is said to frequent and haunt the queen's house. So the queen's area of the tower is where um, Arabella Stewart is said to haunt. Of course, there's multiple accounts of, quote, a white woman or a gray woman there within a the tower. They'll smell a perfume. They'll see a white woman. There's multiple accounts. But in the research that I could find, there wasn't necessarily one way to pin down where at Hampton Court Palace, the, the, the gray woman was the... Oh, I forget her name, but she was the servant that was left alone, and then her grave got disturbed in the 19th century, and then she's been active ever since. We know who that grave woman was here at the tower. We don't necessarily know who this is. And of course, Anne Boleyn, is the most notorious ghost that still haunts the execution yard. There's multiple reports of people seeing her. There's multiple documentaries about the ghost of Anne Boleyn and Anne Boleyn's time at the tower that I highly recommend if you want to learn more and lean into that part of royal history to go for it. But now there's the tall tale of what's called the Toppling Tower. So in 1240, when King Henry II was trying to uh, renovate and construct on, on the tower, he ordered the construction of a water gate to fortify the tower's riverside defenses. But because it was built on marshland, you know, there's not a lot to support the weight of the stone. So every time, you know, setting the foundation was really difficult. It was really hard to do so. Every time that they would start building it and start making progress, on it, it would collapse, and it would collapse into into the river. One thing to happen is every time that it would collapse or there'd be issues, it always happened on St. George's Day. When Henry asked the builders, you know, what is this miraculous? Why does this keep happening? Is this a coincidence? Is there some interventions? But the builders didn't want to admit incompetence and that they weren't necessarily doing something very well. They created a superstition to scare the king, that on both occasions, when the tower fell, Uh, It was the ghost of Thomas Becket had appeared and demolished the almost completed tower. Desperate to placate this apparent ghost of Thomas Becket, whose murder had been at the result of the harsh words of King Henry II, the grandfather of King Henry III, who was now ordering this construction, uh, Henry III ordered that a chapel dedicated to St. Thomas be built. And once the chapel was built, and then they... They went forward with this construction, the structure was completed, no ghostly interference, and it has survived on this marshland, on this marsh foundation, for nearly 700 years. Another ghost that is a little weird to talk about is the apparent ghost of a monk. So this monk is unnamed just as the monk, but of course, before it was open to the public and even kind of still to this day, people live at the tower. It's still a working sort of place of residence. And multiple times people have seen a ghostly monk who's, they've heard his sandals uh, hitting the stone. They've seen this monk and it's, they don't necessarily know where he's come from. There's really what I've been able to find. There's not a lot of record about this monk. The monk has occasionally shared his very lonely visual with the ghost of an unseen child, whose heart-rendered sobs were, according to say the least, somewhat distressed for those who live there. So there's this random ghost of a monk that's going to comfort this ghost of a child, who they many people have heard screaming and crying, don't necessarily know where they're from, don't necessarily know any association with them, but there is this reports of an unknown monk and a uh, comforting a child that has been crying so we're now going to talk about the haunted wakefield tower so the most tragic of monarchs to have resided there the unfortunate king henry the sixth he was imprisoned there for a very for a decent amount of time he had a very ineffectual reign it wasn't necessarily the best and he was in imp- And he ended up imprisoned at the tower and was eventually murdered before midnight on May 21st, 1471, as he was kneeling to a small altar in this tower. So it has been suggested, but again, hasn't been proven that the person behind the murder, which... Uh, Henry the Sixth was stabbed multiple times. Is said to be the Duke of Gloucester, who none other was King Richard the Third. Again, it can't be proven that Richard the Third was the one that killed Henry the Sixth, but Henry the Sixth was in prison there for a while. He didn't have the best reign. He didn't wasn't very well liked, and he was murdered while kneeling at an altar in that area of the Tower. You can still see to this day. So the most notorious ghost of all, so aside from a made-up ghost in the reign of Henry III that ended up kind of doing its job to keep the ground safe, to a haunted tower where another king got killed, the ghosts of Anne Boleyn, the ghost of a monk, and a little crying child... But the most notorious ghost that's kind of real in some regards, I'll put the evidence put forth, is the armor of King Henry VIII. Out of all of the exhibits at the Tower of London, one of the things you can see is the armor of King Henry VIII. You know, King Henry VIII was a very active man in his youth. He was very spelt. He was very, you know, his armor reflects that, and of course, he Fell off a horse during jousting, hurt his leg, and that wound never recovered, and so as he got older, he really gained a lot of weight. But in his prime, he was a very svelte young man, and as a result, the armor that is 100% his reflects that, and it's on display at the tower. When guards have been patrolling the tower at night, in general, when they've been patrolling and doing their job, they felt just general senses of uneasy, not really comfortable just they're anxious, they get feelings of dread, you know, clouded thoughts, they chills running down their back. But there have been a few instances that have occurred around the armor of Henry VIII that are kind of alarming that make you go, okay, what's going on here in this room? It's in a specific area. Many people many guards both men women doesn't matter gender gender identity doesn't matter when they've walked into the room at night it feels as if they're being crushed alive there's been one report as if someone has felt like quote a demon has jumped from the ceiling and has wrapped its arms tight around my chest and it's trying to suffocate me Um, another has said that quote it feels like an invisible monster trying to strangle them it's felt as if somebody's been like grabbing their neck and trying to suffocate them that way and moment they've left that room all of a sudden it's fine one guard said it felt like they were being assaulted with an invisible cloak where it felt like somebody had you know a rope with you know that a cloak would have around the collar that kept tightening and tightening like someone was choking them and then just this weight of you know what a cloak would have just just all over his you know shoulders and uh upper body and then of course when they leave the room they can finally breathe and there's multiple marks of you no know, marks on the neck. Looks like somebody's been strangling them, especially the one individual who said they were being strangled with a uh, cloak. There's red marks on their neck that unexplained. And again, this all happens as feeling like they're being crushed alive. These these feelings of suffocation all occur at night when they are patrolling the room holding Henry VIII's armor. Now, one thing to note is the armor has been moved around the tower many, many times. And every time that the armor has been moved, those sensations follow it. It's not just something specific to that room. It's specific to wherever the armor goes. That this feeling of I can't breathe, feels like someone's strangling me, and all these other heightened emotions happen when you're around the armor of King Henry VIII. Is it coincidence? I don't know. Is it terrifying? Yes, it is very terrifying. So you can, the armor is on display today. You can visit it, but word of the wise, it probably has a very, whatever energy is attached to that armor, something ain't right there. And, you know, word of the wise, as night starts to fall, I would probably suggest maybe visiting the armor another time. You don't need to see it tonight. I would like to breathe. Thank you. In my opinion, the Tower of London is a truly terrifying place. A thousand years ago, William the Conqueror set out to create a very imposing structure of the Tower of London, and still to this day, he has achieved its goal. When I think of terrifying middle Age castles and palaces and very imposing structures, what do I first think of is the Tower of London. In my opinion it is probably one of the more haunted castles in europe and possibly one of the more haunted locations in the world it's been a site of execution murder torture it was a prison it's survived multiple wars there's still world war Uh, world war ii shrapnel from the blitz that you can still see on the exterior facades it has it's seen it all it's lived through everything now from war from the middle ages all the way through today it's seen it all it's experienced it it's experienced the heightened positivity of a coronation and the negativity and trauma of torture prison interrogation and death There's countless documentaries about the Tower of London, both of its time holding the crown jewels as the royal mint, to prisoners, paranormal stuff. There's multiple things out there covering the Tower of London. So if you want a more comprehensive and detailed about specific topics, I highly suggest looking into them. There's so many documentaries on YouTube. But that, dear listeners, is a brief foray into the very scary location that is the Tower of London. Have you visited there? Have you had any weird experiences at all? Let me know. Let me know on social media. I'd really love to continue this conversation, but I can't wait to visit the Tower of London and also be kind of creeped out about the Tower of London. It in all honesty, it kind of makes me nervous. The tower still does to this day. It's a very it's a very intimidating place to go. It's very terrifying. So I can understand why certain ghosts would still haunt there because yeah, they had a very traumatic death, and so they're going to haunt the place where they, where, where they died. But that, in a nutshell, is the Tower of London. My sources for today's podcast are historicroyalpalaces.com, wikipedia, history.com, londonwalkingtours.co.uk, exploringcastles.com, and historicuk.com. If you made it this far, thank you for stopping by the podcast. You're a real trooper. Thank you for making it this far. If you'd like to recommend topics for future episodes or let me know how I'm doing so I can improve the podcast, you can drop me a line over at the official email, which is BritishRoyalFanPod at gmail.com. Any and all suggestions are welcome, and I look forward to hearing from you you want to stay up to date on the podcast, what's happening within the Royal family, you can head over to Twitter and follow me at fanatic underscore Royal, or you can search the podcast by name, British Royal Fanatic Podcast. There's also an official Facebook page, uh, the British Royal Fanatic Podcast. I try to post as regularly as I can, but I am more active on Twitter than Facebook, but the Facebook community is there for all of you to interact with. Find me there. I'd really love for everybody to come on social media so the family can continue to grow. If you feel so inclined and want to donate to the podcast, there are links both on the Anchor homepage and on Twitter to a one-time donation link to the official PayPal for the podcast. Any and all donations are greatly appreciated, as I'm a one-man show here, and I'd appreciate the support so I can make the podcast the best it can be. Head over to Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Amazon Music, Audible, or wherever you're listening to this podcast to rate, review, share, and subscribe. The more you do that, the more people can see this and the family can continue to grow. Have a great week, everyone. Stay safe and stay healthy. Have a wonderful October. And I will see you in the next one.